88.7 FM, WAGP Buford, Hilton Head Island, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Buford, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Buford, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are just tuning in here through WAGP.net or at 88.7 FM locally, uh, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe you're studying God's Word and there's a challenge that you're facing or a question you're not sure how to respond to. Well, if we can be of help, you can call us again locally at 8-7-843-525-1859. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is uh, 525-1859, or you can call us toll-free, 877, the call letters, WAGP 980. We do give preference to live callers, so if you want your question answered in the immediate realm, then we encourage you to uh, call directly. You can dictate your question or go on the air live. And what a great day, a rainy, wet day here in the low country to be listening. And, you know, it's interesting to me, Rick, there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, parents who are home educating. Uh, in fact, uh, home education has literally doubled in the last 18 months uh, due to COVID. And I think more than anything, an awareness by parents of what their children are being taught and some are just coming unglued and looking for other alternatives. But um, what is interesting is a number of parents who use this as part of their Bible curriculum, and they tune in with their children, and uh, sometimes the children submit questions, but sometimes they're just listening to sharpen their sword. So that's, that's a great thing. All right, let's go ahead, and we'll get started this morning. All right, very good, Pastor. Yes, we've got a number of questions, and the first comes from Jeremiah in Lafayette, Indiana, he writes, in the, Arche- in the Angelology series, you mentioned we should be training our children to be able to handle persecution. Do you have any practical ways to do this if we are not actively being persecuted? We have two boys that are four and six years old. Well, yes, uh, this is an excellent, excellent question that you're asking. And by the way, he's referencing the Angelology series. And so we have a thing called the Institute of Biblical Studies where people can work on a 34-hour degree. It's an equivalent to what you call a Bible certificate. A Bible certificate is different from a master's, uh, a two-year master's or a three-year master's of divinity or a four-year master of theology. It's kind of the minimum that is needed if someone maybe wants to go into the pastorate and wants to just have their short sword sharpened but are unable to go through a full seminary curriculum. Um, The majority of pastors in the United States have actually never been to seminary, and so uh, this is an excellent tool for them. Uh, In addition, uh, it's uh, kind of the bare minimum if someone wants to become a missionary. So we offer this course of study. In fact, Chuck Swindoll was issued a 
Bible certificate um, because he had never graduated from college and uh, before uh, his involvement at Dallas Seminary. So there's a lot of options. And so this is the course in angelology. So I guess I mentioned something about being persecuted. Uh, A classic chapter is John 15. In John 15, Jesus first describes our relationship to him. Uh, He's the vine, we're the branches. Then he describes our relationship to each other. Uh, and then our relationship to the world. And here, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So this is one of the great him-us passages. If this is true of him, this will be true of us. And so if they could hate the Lord Jesus, who is perfect, who never had a evil thought, word, or action of any kind, and still persecute him, what will they do with us with all of our imperfections, and not to mention when you become a believer, you're inhabited by Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. In fact, each member of the Godhead is credited with uh, living inside of you, uh, though certainly the accent is on God, the Holy Spirit. But in either case, when God indwells you, you begin more and more as you grow up in Christ to uh, reflect um, what he is like. And if someone is love in love with the darkness, then they're not going to be excited about that and they will persecute you. So how do you train your children? Well, you first begin by teaching them the reality of persecution. Uh, so Hebrews 3 says we become partakers of the divine nature. And when that happens, your appetites change. You have a new desire to want to please God, to obey God. And if you've been deeply entrenched in the world, Maybe you're saved as an adult and, you know, you used to do a lot of things with your friends and all of a sudden you have a new life in Christ and new life brings new direction. Uh, They don't like you all of a sudden. So we are to recognize persecution is a reality. If the world hates you, and by the world here, he's referring to the unbelieving world. If the unbelieving world hates you, know that it hated me first. And so, of course, uh, this assumes that we're not isolated. Uh, There are some Christians who really don't experience much persecution for the simple reason they're isolated from the world. They're not really engaged with it, Uh, nor does it mean that we're insulated, that we build these, you know, walls up so that the world can never see us or get to know us. But it does mean that as we live our life, openly before an unbelieving world. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, he describes us as an aroma, either an aroma that stinks in the nostrils of some people, or to other people, we are a sweet savor. So um, persecution, classic book to read on it, of course, would be the book of Acts. They try to stamp the church out. And interestingly, most of the persecution that's recorded in Acts doesn't come from the government. It comes from the religious community, from the unbelieving religious Jews in the first century. Uh, but the more they were persecuted, and sometimes it comes from officials, and we have more and more persecution that is unfolding in our world through uh, the governments of this world. And someday there will be the epitome of all governments, a single world government. And I really believe the stage is being set for this. Uh, through things like COVID, where the governments of the world in a profound way are cooperating and working together in ways that we've never seen them do before. And this will be a precursor to what will happen. You know, in some places you can't 
go into a restaurant unless you have a vaccinated card. Uh, look, there'll be a time when you won't be able to buy or sell anything unless you have a different kind of card. It will be a stamp. It will be a tattoo, possibly maybe a chip, either on your forehead or on your right hand. But as you read through the Acts, the more they try to stamp the church out, the faster it seems to grow. Uh, Tertullian, the great church historian, used to say the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the more the blood of the believers were spilt, it was like seed that just sprouted everywhere and new churches began. And so the early church, interestingly, was born in persecution and it will end in persecution. In fact, the greatest persecution the world has ever seen is still in front of us. It's after the rapture of the church during the time of the Great Tribulation. In either case, uh, it was born in persecution because Christ came into a very dark world. And the world of the first century will mimic the world of the final century when Christ returns. Uh, The promise that God gives us is all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that would be a good verse for your children to memorize, Second. Timothy 3 and verse 12, we are doing a series called Basic Discipleship, and we're coming to a section on the Christian in the Word, and I will be giving people 100 passages slash verses that every believer should know, and this is certainly one of them. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, one of the marks of a believer that they're headed towards heaven is their open identity with Christ, and that invites persecution. And of course, most of the persecution in the history of the church has not been physical, it's been verbal. And so I don't think it's by accident that that's what Jesus highlights here in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all things, uh, all kinds of evil against you because of me. So it's false, it's not true, and it's um, because of him. It's for, for Christ's sake. So all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so the best way to prepare your children for persecution is to teach them what God says about it. Uh, some people are in Christ, have been born again, but they're not in the world. Um, and certainly that would be true largely of your children, They're in Christ, but they're not engaged in the world that much, though look what's happening now because of the hardening of children's hearts at a younger and younger age. You can have a 10-year-old who maybe behaves in a certain way, and your born-again Christian child takes issue, and all of a sudden they're made fun of and bullied. That's a form of persecution. Uh, But for the most part, you know, when the children are being raised and their spiritual spine is being developed. You do everything that you can to protect them, to get them strong in Christ. Before Daniel ever went to Babylon, God had prepared him and his three friends with a certain spiritual strength so that they had the ability to stand up against the paganism of Babylon. But if someone is in Christ but not in the world, uh, and that happens with teenagers and adults largely through their disobedience, Uh, They are unwilling to bridge uh, their lives into the lives of unbelievers. And so we go into our little holy huddles and we live in our 
you know, religious ghettos, and we never go out except for maybe an occasional evangelical mugging, as I would call it, and we, we try to win someone to Jesus. Look, we should be speaking of Jesus all the time, not in an offensive way where you have like Bible breath, but, you know, as you go, make disciples. It might be as simple as inviting someone to church that you meet in the checkout line at Walmart or maybe the cashier or some neighbor and you say, hey, by the way, do you go to church anywhere? That's a great question to ask. By the way, do you go to church anywhere? And and you're beginning to identify openly with Jesus Christ. So some people are in Christ, but they're not in the world. They've insulated, they've isolated themselves. Uh, some people are not in Christ and they're in the world. And so they experience no persecution because the world likes them. If you're not born again, you're not going to typically be persecuted And then there are those who are in Christ and in the world, and that invites persecution. You are going to be persecuted if you live godly, if you speak up for Jesus. So prepare your children, because it's not getting easier. I had a a young high school student come up to me after the service a couple of Sundays ago. I was speaking on uh, combating the moral perversion of this age, and she plays on a volleyball team at one of the public high schools, and she said, like, this team is filled with lesbians, and they're hitting on me. They're making fun of me for my Christian faith, why I don't appreciate or embrace lesbianism. And, and that's, uh, that's where the world is at today. Um, they are becoming more and more frontal in their expression uh, of evil. In fact, Rick, you sent me an email uh, the other day of someone who visited our church, and she basically wanted to know where I stood or really where our church stood on lesbianism and the LGBTQ plus schedule because she didn't want to come if we weren't in favor of it. And so um, it came through the church email. I said, well, just send her the last message I preached, and she'll at least know where I stand. And in that message, by the way, I was holding open arms out to the LGBTQ community, to come, to visit, to hear the gospel, but not to embrace that lifestyle, but to repent of it. Very good. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. Sonia from Rinkin writes, I've been listening to your series on the Gospel of John, and in one sermon you say that the term the Son of Man was only used once in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. This was confusing to me because I've been reading through Ezekiel, and isn't Ezekiel referred to several times as the Son of Man? Is there a different nuance to the term used in Ezekiel versus Daniel, and are there different words used in original manuscripts that, weren't, uh, that were translated differently? Well, you've got to listen very, very carefully, and the difference between what you see in Ezekiel and what I was referring to in my series on John was a simple three-letter word, the the Son of Man versus a Son of Man. So Ezekiel is never called a Son of Man. He's called the Son of Man. And it is true that the title, the Son of Man, as it refers to the Messiah, only appears once. And in the Old Testament, it's uh, used like 80 plus times in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, it appears once just in the prophet Daniel. So when you think of the Lord Jesus, there are three critical titles that come in his life. He's called the Son of David because uh, the Messiah was going to come through the tribe of Judah, the family of David. 
And so he comes through the royal line of David. That speaks of his royalty. That speaks of the fact that he is king. He's called the son of God, uh, uh, an important title, because uh, that is to underscore his deity. But he's also called the son of man. And Mark especially loves to use that term, but not exclusively. Uh, in Matthew's gospel, if you remember, because to, to use any one of these terms, to say he's the son of David, the son of God, or the son of man, is to say the other two. So, for instance, if you remember when I just turned to Matthew chapter uh, 26, and it 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 is a, a record of the Lord Jesus before Caiaphas. They seized him. They led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. And we're told now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. So when it came to defending his innocence, just as the prophet Isaiah had written, he was like a, a sheep uh, silent before its shearers. He never defended his innocence. Why? So that he might be found guilty so that you could be forgiven. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So he quotes Daniel seven thirteen, the one place the term Son of Man is used. Now remember, the question is, he put him under oath and he said, are you the Son of God? And he answers basically saying, I'm the Son of Man. Because as I just mentioned, to say one is to say the other. So then the high priest tore his robes and said, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He asked these other religious leaders, and they all said he deserves death. So the Son of Man versus a Son of Man. The Son of Man is found only once in the Old Testament. It's a great passage of Scripture. I have a whole message on it from Daniel 7. Uh, You see two members of the Trinity interacting with one another. The Ancient of Days, a reference to God the Father, and the Son of Man, a reference to God's Messiah. And again, um, he's seen coming on the clouds in glory because clouds are the raiment of God. He led Israel with a cloud by day. The Mount of the Transfiguration where uh, Peter, James, and John were there with Moses and Elijah and Christ, uh, the Father appeared from heaven in a cloud, if you remember. On the Mount of Olives, uh, on the day of his ascension, he's captured up into heaven in a cloud. And when he comes back, behold, he's coming with the clouds, as we studied in the book of Revelation. And it's really a reference to uh, Daniel's description of the coming of the Son of Man. So the article, the, is important. And by the way, it might be important to ask, why does Ezekiel termed a son of man, and I think it's three or four times, I can't remember exactly, uh, in the prophet Ezekiel, but it's just a few times. He's deemed that because there's a comparison, like in the opening where you see this wheel and so forth. There's a 
uh, comparison between the greatness and magnificence of God and the frailty of a human, even though he's a prophet, but nonetheless human, a man like Ezekiel. So God underscores that he's only human by using the term a son of man. And by the way, there are other words like that and titles that context is important in the article used is important. Like there are many who are called prophets in the Bible. But one of the terms that Moses uses that's referenced in the Gospel of John is that the Messiah will be the prophet. And again, the difference is just that little three-letter word in English, the prophet, versus any old prophet. Good question. All right, let's uh, let's go to the next one. And if you're trying to get a hold of us this morning, it's 843-525-1859. You can go on the air live or you can simply dictate your question. We're happy to receive it one way or the other. Alberto from Savannah is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Yes, good morning, Dr. Colbrook and Rick Forstner. Um, uh, I had a comment or a question to say. I listened to the sermon on, on the app by the Biden government, and and some things, I agree with you saying all that, but, uh, but sometimes you can find loopholes in all the different stuff you were saying. Like, like, for example, we supposed to obey the government, but what about the very laws that are passed override the government? Or, like, example, you say somebody's going to break into your home, and and you're going to, if you shoot them and the light's not on, and you know that person's not going to kill you, and you, and you can't shoot and shoot them, but, what, but you, don't, you still don't know the intentions that person is going to do to you, even though with the light on. He could be out, he could still, oh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to, I was just checking around your your place. You know, I'm an electrician or whatever, and he, he probably have a gun on his back, and suddenly he just robs you, shoots you. And so you can't predict people's intentions, even so got the light on, or he can say this and that. How many times, how many people have worked, got employed by certain people, and end up killing them and robbing them and everything? So it's, it's no, you can't, you, you don't know people's uh, intentions, uh, people's hearts. Even though you try to apply the biblical rules of the Old Testament and all that stuff, but ultimately uh, you can't know the person's intentions anyway. And even like the laws, you say but by the government, but about the laws that passed right now about abortion and all this stuff going on with uh, LGBT, all the transgender and all that stuff. So the laws over by the government, it was all you say you're supposed to obey the government. So what do you think about that? Well, um, here's the general principle. The general principle is that when God's law overrules man's law, there's no question as to whom we should submit to. So there is a challenge, for instance, with some religious leaders in Jerusalem when the church is newly started, and they said, you can't preach anymore in Jesus's name. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. So there are laws that will be passed and are being passed that are totally in defiance of what God has revealed in Holy Scripture. And when that happens, we are to defy the law. We are not to obey uh, the human government if there's a higher law. Now, that's not to say that there aren't times when, you know, there's a law that we don't like, but it doesn't necessarily violate our moral code. And so the government says you should wear a mask. Well, you know, um, there was a lot of debate. Churches split over it. 
but there are times sometimes when we may not desire to do something where I don't want to wear a mask. But if they tell me when I get in an airplane, I have to wear a mask right now under federal law, I'm going to wear one. Uh, I'm not going to fight the stewardess. I'm not going to get hauled off the plane. It's not violating anything in the moral code of God. And I can submit to it even though I may not want to. And I think maybe it's silly. Uh, I'm not saying it is silly, but I'm just saying that's the way some people think. There are some people who say, this is just stupid. The mask doesn't do anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to do it. Well, you know, Jesus said, if a man comes and asks you, a Roman soldier, to carry his back one mile, you should take it too. You shouldn't have this attitude of uh, hatred. Now, that's not to say there's not a place for you know, political freedoms based on the Constitution that our government is, you know, ordained under. But with that said, uh, I am to obey the law if it doesn't create some kind of uh, consternation between what God has already revealed in Holy Scripture. The example that you referenced in, in, was in reference to someone breaking into my home at night. And, and God gives some, you know, very specific uh, details as to when we have the right to take a man's life and when we don't. So human life is valued by God, and sometimes we have to protect our loved ones. And if someone is breaking into your home and you can't tell what their intention is and you tell them to stop and it's dark, and this would be especially true in the centuries in which it was written when Moses gives the details on when it's permissible and when it's not, um, and you take the person's life, you're not guilty. Um, but however, he said, if the sun is risen and it's clear that your life is not being threatened and you take the person's life, then you are guilty. There was a case in Texas that a person was exonerated on. Biblically, he should not have been exonerated, but there was, uh, he was asked to watch his next-door neighbor's home while the person was away and he saw two people. As it turns out, they were illegal aliens who had come over the border and they were breaking into this Texas home. And he said, don't break in or I'm going to shoot you. And uh, he kept warning them. And then he called the police and the police said, please don't shoot him. Wait till we get there and we will handle it. And he ended up shooting and killing uh, using his weapon when his own life was not in danger. He was exonerated under Texas law. Now, that that would be a, a case where, again, Texas law overran God's law. Under God's law, he should, he should have been found guilty, and he will be guilty at the great white throne judgment unless he repents and comes to Christ and receives him as his personal Savior. So there is a greater magistrate principle which basically teaches we are to obey God rather than men. Uh, unless man's law is not intruding on God's law, and then we are called to submit. And it's important that we are good citizens in that respect. And sadly, some Christians, you know, make issues out of things that shouldn't be issues. And But that's because they don't really care about winning people to Jesus. And people who typically do this, they never win anyone to Jesus. If you ask them, when was the last time you shared the gospel where the person, you know, became a member of a New Testament local church and was baptized because of your testimony. They can probably tell you, I, I don't remember. It's never happened. 
That's because they've got attitude issues, and God really can't use them. Anyway, good question. 843-525-1859 is the local number. The toll-free exchange is uh, 877-WAGP980, and you can go on the air live, as Alberto just did, or you can dictate your question, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is wagp.net. All right, very good. Sue from Beaufort writes, I have heard different preachers use Luke 6.38 as a reason why you should be generous in your giving. I know the Bible says we should be a cheerful giver and we'll reap what we, we, we sow, but this verse comes in the context of a passage on judging others. Is it a misuse of Scripture to take it out of its context in this manner? That That's really a great question. So let me just turn there. I've opened up here to Luke chapter 6. And uh, you're referencing Luke 6:38 in its context, and uh, really it, it goes back uh, another verse. This is uh, the Lord giving the Beatitudes. This is not the same time He gave the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak, uh, found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, though He gives very similar counsel, and you'd expect if there are some non-negotiable uh, truths that need to be heard over and over and over again, then God will sometimes record the same message twice. So this is the same message, so to speak, but it's given in an entirely different context. I won't try to defend that, but if you're interested, uh, you can listen to my series on the Sermon on the Mount that I did 25 years ago. But beginning in verse 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Then he says, do not judge and you will not be judged and do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned, give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So Sue's question is, is Luke 6.38 dealing purely with your monetary gifts? And the answer, of course, is no. But then the question is, can you use it in that respect? And the answer is yes. So let's think our way through it. He begins by saying, do not judge. Now, of course, one of the most popularly quoted verses in the Bible is, judge not, lest you be judged, from Matthew 7 and verse 1, where the Sermon on the Mount is given in a different uh, locale, on a mount, so to speak, on a hill uh, there around the Sea of Galilee. And uh, people like to use this verse, and they like it to mean, they hope it will mean that Jesus basically is giving a universal acceptance of any kind of lifestyle or teaching. So if you're living in adultery with your friend, they'll say, well, don't judge lest you be judged. Or if you challenge them on drunkenness or homosexuality, judge not lest you be judged. The Pope recently used this verse out of its context, but there's obviously a time to judge. And if you read Matthew 7 and verse 1, he's dealing with the unfair criticism of another person, especially when the same issue is in your own life. But there's obviously some kind of judgment that God allows because he'll say just a few verses later, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn you and tear you to uh, pieces. That involves some judgment. In other words, there's a time Jesus said when you are to withhold the gospel when there is such utter disdain for holy things, keep your mouth shut. Don't cash the gospel pearl. 
before people who are like pigs who are just going to trample over it, make fun of it, and, and mock and blaspheme the things of God. Um, there's obviously a time for judgment. In 1 Corinthians 6, if you remember, they had a problem with um, people suing each other. We're talking about born-again Christians suing other born-again Christians. And so he says, I've turned over there, does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges or of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. So Paul's point was is that there should be some wise brethren in the church where if two Christians have a dispute with one another, there should be some leadership who can resolve that dispute rather than dragging the case into a court of law which ends up mocking the name of Christ. We've had what we call elders court maybe, I don't know, a dozen times in the last 30-plus years I've been the pastor of this church. And sometimes it's been with a Christian outside of our church, and they have called and said, Pastor Carl, can we have a meeting with uh, your leadership? Uh, There's a member of your church who hasn't paid me for such and such a thing, or they did this work, and it was... um, you know, less than standard performance, and, you know, I I don't want to take them to court because the Scripture warns against that, and and so would you have a meeting? Of course we do, and again, a man's case seems just, Proverbs says, until another comes and examines it, and sometimes there's two sides to every story. Um, But if indeed, say, one of our members is uh, not faithful to the promise he made, he's going to be held into account if he values his membership. But that's how you, you, you solve it. Um, so judge not lest you be judged. Uh, and when Jesus says here in Luke 6, 37, do not judge and you will not be judged, he is not uh, eliminating and eradicating all judgment. In fact, in John's gospel, he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And again, that's the heart of what Jesus is dealing with in the Sermon on the Mount. Our judgment must be in righteousness. It has to be according to the dictates of the Bible and not our opinion, because our opinion is really meaningless to God. The only thing that matters to him is his infallible eternal word. And then he says, and do not condemn, and you not will not be condemned. Uh, pardon, and you will be pardoned. And again, it's the principle of reaping what you sow. Uh, we are to forgive each other. If you remember in that great parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, it was um, it was uh, in response to a question that Peter asked, how many times should we forgive our brother? Up to seven times? Because that was the typical rabbinical teaching. If you were really generous, you forgive your brother up to seven times, and then that's it. And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven, 490 times. Uh, his point was is that as often as they wrong you, because love keeps no record of wrongs, you continue to forgive them. By the time you've forgiven a brother 490 times, you'll be in the habit of forgiving. And who can remember 490 times anyway? His point is that you just endlessly forgive them as God has forgiven you. That's Paul's argument in Ephesians uh, that 
be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just like God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. So it's in this context that Jesus makes this statement in Luke 6, given, it will be given to you, they will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. So this verse is given in the context of how we treat other people, reminding us again that we reap what we sow. If we're generous in our attitude towards other people, we're quick to forgive, we, we don't unfairly criticize or judge them, and so on. God says you're going to receive back in the same way. So he's encouraging us to be generous without fearing that we're going to be the losers because you can't really outgive God. So really, contextually, the most um, proper way to interpret Luke 6.38 is in our dealings with other people. Does that mean that we cannot apply it in the area of financial giving? No, not at all. So it's important that you distinguish between what we would call a primary uh, interpretation and application and then a secondary application. So there's only one interpretation for every passage of Scripture. There may be dozens of applications. And so the primary interpretation with its application is how we treat one another. But would I be wrong as a pastor to quote Luke 6.38 in the realm of giving? And the answer would be no. Now, if that's the only way I taught the passage, then I would be doing my people disservice because it is so rich in application in our dealings with one another, especially people who have offended us. Another example that comes to mind would be here in First uh, Timothy chapter 5. He says, um, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and so on. Then he says, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed, who has been left alone, meaning she has no children, she has no grandchildren who can meet her needs, has her hope fixed on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those in his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So this is a verse, 1 Timothy 5, 8, that we often apply downward. We think, well, if parents aren't providing for their children— As believers, they're worse than an infidel. They're worse than an unbeliever. But if we teach it only in that way, if we apply it only in that way, then we've missed the primary application. And the primary application is not downward, it's upward. That if I'm a child and I have living parents and I ignore their needs, or even if I, as a child, am ignoring their needs, but Uh, I'm a grandchild and I know my grandparents have a need, then I'm to meet that need. Sometimes people come to the church and they need help and a good screen is, well, do you have any children? Well, yes, I do, but I'm too embarrassed to go to them. Well, you're supposed to go to them first. 
uh, and you are robbing them of a God-given commandment if you don't go to them for help. And maybe it's your pride that's preventing you. Or maybe the grandchildren should step up to the plate. So before the church would take on a widow indeed, where they would help that widow on a regular basis, there needed to be no children or grandchildren that could not first meet that need. And so this is a passage of Scripture that is very similar to Luke 6.38, and that there's a primary application. It's upward. But there's also a secondary application that would be downward. And so if I don't provide for my own, say my own children, that's a downward application, then I'm acting worse than an unbeliever. But if I teach it only in that fashion, then I am eliminating the responsibility that maybe adult children have towards their parents or grandchildren, parents who are much older. And Paul's argument is they took care of you when you were small. Now you take care of them when they're old. And there's that responsibility. However that unfolds, however you're going to do that, you need to make sure that their needs are being met and they're being met properly. It's all part of honoring your father and your mother. Uh, There was a lady that moved here years ago, and I said, why did you move here? She said, well, my grandfather is like 91 years old and in need. And so I moved here to take care of my grandfather. And I said, "Uh, children, uh, they're not engaged, not really um, you know, they, they are, you know, off doing their own thing and they don't seem to really care, but she took this text of scripture seriously. And she knew that since the children were unwilling to step up to the plate, she moved here from New York in order to take care of her grandfather until he, he went home to be with the Lord. Eight four three five two five one eight five nine. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Elizabeth from Beaufort says, if you have fear, what is the best way to get over it? Well, um, it's a good question, Elizabeth. And so it's important first to identify the fear. What is the root cause of the fear? Because the way you deal with fear depends on the kind of fear. What is the fear first rooted in? Let me give you some examples without knowing what your particular issue may be. Um, suppose for instance, uh, you're fearful of how people will respond if you share Christ with them. Well, um, maybe that is rooted in a false view of what our responsibility is in converting people. Um, I often would quote Dr. Bill Bright, a illustration he used 50 years ago, and he would say that successful witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in using the results to God, leaving the results to God. And so if I am a spirit-filled believer and I am obedient to share the gospel, then I leave the results to God. Why? Because ultimately it is in God's hand. In the truest sense, I've never introduced anyone to Christ. That is, I've never converted anyone because conversion is a work of the Spirit of God. Now, have I been an instrument in the hand of God to lead people into the kingdom? And by God's grace, the answer is yes. But you see, it's not my responsibility to convert someone. It's my responsibility to share the gospel. Oh, people fear, well, what if, I, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Then you just say, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. But if you know what Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. I promise you that question's been asked before, and I'll get an answer for you. There's nothing new. In fact, you can take all the questions that people ask 
about um, the Christian faith and their objections to becoming a Christian, or and they boil down to about 10 questions. And we cover these, by the way, in our discipleship course given at Community Bible Church every Sunday. It's called the Discovery Class. It's a 45-week discipleship course, and there's a section in it called the 10 Most Commonly Asked Questions. So you want to ask, what's the root of it? Maybe, maybe uh, I'm fearful that they could hurt me. Well, Jesus said, don't fear the people who can only destroy your body. Rather, fear, we're to fear God who can destroy body and soul in hell. In other words, he's saying that's misplaced fear. If I'm fearful that people might ignore me or persecute me or make fun of me physically or say things against me falsely, kind of going back to a prior question today, then I need to remember what Jesus said. So how do I remember it when I need it? I memorize it. I meditate on it. And I memorize and meditate on it in its context because then the verse really becomes alive and it becomes a tool in the hand of the Spirit of God to help me. Um, Maybe people are fearful when they look at the events that are unfolding in our world. We're witnessing our country coming unraveled. I mean, we are literally witnessing the nation we call the United States of America coming undone. And really, it's not just America. It's happening in nations across the world. There's growing lawlessness and violence and immorality. And um, we can let those things govern us or we can hear what Jesus said and enjoy him and enjoy the promises that he makes. Jesus said, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah, and will mislead many. And this will be especially true during the time of the tribulation because the world is going to be in such desperate shape. As bad as it is now, you haven't seen anything yet. This isn't one one-thousandth of what is coming in the future after the church is removed. And there's going to be such turmoil in the world. People are going to be grasping and looking for leadership and for someone to rescue them. And it will be a prime climate for someone to say, well, I'm the Messiah. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But this is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away, and many will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world. So he, he, he gives all these things, and then he'll say, but don't fear about it because I've told you in advance, these things have to happen. These things must take place. So when you put it in perspective and say, well, God told us in advance that the days of Noah and the days of Lot that we're beginning to see unfold in our day, is going to happen at the end of the age. So he tells us, don't fear about it. Why? I've told you in advance that these things are going to happen. So what does that remind me? It reminds me that God is on his throne, that God's not up in heaven saying, hey, we need to call an emergency meeting here of the Holy Trinity because there's things going down there on earth that we didn't know was going to happen. No, God's omniscient. He's over the affairs of men and nations. So what you want to do, Elizabeth, is you want to ask, well, what is it that's making me fearful? You want to identify the root of that fear, 
And then you want to find scripture that addresses that fear. Over 300 times in the Bible, God tells us not to fear. Um, someone said there's 365, one for every day of the year. I, I'm not sure that's true. It makes for good preaching. But there's over 300 times when God gives us, a, you know, a kind of a don't fear uh, admonition. And so you want to find out, and then you want to take that scripture and you want to memorize it and meditate on it in its context. Like the last question that came in in reference to Luke 638, uh, given will be given unto you. When I really memorize and meditate that verse of scripture in its context, that it's dealing with other people and how we treat others, then it's going to be alive in my life. And so what happens if I'm walking with the Lord as best I know, and I've hidden scripture in my heart, then the spirit of God will bring to the forefront of my mind, the truth of scripture that I've hidden in my heart. And then I have to really block out what he is saying. And that's how you deal with temptation. And it might be a temptation for needless fear. And so how did Jesus deal with temptation? With each temptation is recorded in Matthew 4, Luke 4, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. He hid scripture in his heart. Uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 119 in the English Bible, in Psalm 119, it's not always Psalm 119 in other uh, languages of the world because they divide the Psalms differently. But in our Bible, Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? He answers it by keeping it according to your word. With all my heart, I have sought you don't let me wander from your commandments. So here's a person who's living in obedience. Um, they're spirit-filled to use New Testament terminology. And then he'll say, thy word I've hid in my heart, your word I've hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. So you want to hide scripture in your heart as it relates to this issue of fear, whatever it is, you want to identify it. If you're not sure, as your parents, as your pastor, hey, here's what I'm fearing over, what would be some good scripture, and then begin to memorize and meditate it, and you will see victory because God doesn't want you to be immobilized by fear. All right, I think we've got time for one more question. This one comes from Rinkin again. Uh, it's about the Olivet Discourse and the timing of the rapture in relation to the tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of wars, famines, and earthquakes, the persecution of the faithful, and the abomination of desolation as being things that we will see, and doesn't mention people the saved, I assume, being taken away. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left, until after he has described the events of the tribulation. It's my understanding that the rapture will occur before the seals are broken and the actual tribulation starts. Can you clear up the timing of the rapture and tribulation as described in Matthew 24? How many terrible things will the saved have to endure before Jesus returns for us and the actual tribulation begins? Well, context is everything, and so the Olivet Discourse, which I was just reading through and quoting, is describing a time frame in human history after the church is removed. And so the next great event on the calendar that God has is the rapture of the church on God's prophetic calendar. It's the catching up of the church. Suddenly, millions of people will be gone across the planet. There are people who make fun of it, and they call well, this secret rapture. I don't find it in Scripture well, they're blind. Uh, it's plainly there, and there's nothing secret about it when millions of people are gone across the planet. Um, it won't be a secret. Uh, it will be known across the world. Now, the explanations as to why these Christians are gone, that will be another issue. But what you read here, like false Christ, that's the first seal judgment where the white horse of deception comes out. 
he speaks here of wars and rumors of war. That's the second rider on the horse, the red horse of war that's described in Revelation 6, the second seal judgment. Then he describes all this uh, death that will come through famines, and well, first famines, and that's the, the, the black horse of famine. And then he speaks of all this death, and that's the pale horse of uh, of death. And then he speaks of martyrs, and that's Revelation uh, 6 where he sees this mass number of people. And the Revelation later on in the 20th chapter tells us the form in which they were executed was by beheading. All these martyrs who are under the altar, and how much longer, Lord? And these are people who are one to Christ during the tribulation period who are martyred for their faith because they refused to take the mark of the beast. And then there's these initial cosmic changes, not to be confused with those that will come later at the end of the tribulation, and that's the sixth seal. And and then the worldwide preaching of the gospel where Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached to the whole world, and then the end will come. That's going to happen during the tribulation. Uh, the gospel will go out through 144,000 Jewish converts, through two witnesses on the Temple Mount, through even an angel that will preach the eternal gospel. So there'll be three basic means that God will bring the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so in Revelation 7, you see this untold number of people that are like the sand of the seashore from every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is all the first half of the tribulation. Then there's the abomination of desolation that takes place in the second half. And then Jesus said it becomes great tribulation. So the tribulation turns into great tribulation. It really gets bad. And that's illustrated in the trumpet in bold judgments. And then he brings it to a crescendo here in Matthew chapter 24 when he completes this argument by uh, speaking about the physical, literal coming, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and he'll gather his elect, and so from the four winds. And so there is this gathering of the elect. The elect are tribulation saints who are one to Christ during the time of the great tribulation. And this is the great trumpet, not to be confused with the last trumpet found in 1 Corinthians. Paul is uh, paralleling the first trumpet that would call people to war and the last trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, which would call people out of war. The war is over. Well, when the last trumpet is sound, when the archangel sounds his trumpet, our war is over, our spiritual battle is over, and God will capture us up and bring us to heaven. So he first comes uh, for his saints, but then he'll come back with his saints. But between those two points is what's described here. The birth pangs giving way to horrible, horrible tribulation on the earth. Anyway, we're out of time. Listen to my series on the Revelation, and maybe some of these questions will be answered for you in far more detail. Thank you for being with us today on The Bible Line. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 